architects and AEC professionals, it's time to connect, grow, and redefine your professional journey. Imagine a place where you're part of a vibrant community, accessing resources tailored to your needs, and earning continuing education credits effortlessly. That place is here at Gable Media. Join our legacy membership, your exclusive pass to a world of opportunities. With instant access to all our CE courses and groundbreaking content, you're set to excel. And here's the game changer. Lock in your legacy membership at an unbeatable introductory price of just $29 per year, forever. Plus, enjoy contests, events, and unique freebies. But hurry, I hear this special pricing won't last long. Spots in our legacy membership are limited and filling up fast. Follow the link in the show notes to be part of something groundbreaking with Gable Media. For me, I'm just helping architects reclaim control of the design process is how I view it. Because as a licensed architect myself, I'm very passionate about design, but I'm also passionate about being able to defend that design. My name is Mark Arlapage, and I'm joined by Patrick McLamey, FAIA, and former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. This is Build Smart. After his time at HOK, Patrick, as he puts it, has been repurposed. Now, as the chairman of Building Smart International, Patrick will outline a new strategy for the building industry and so much more. You'll find that there's a lesson in every episode. Welcome back to Build Smart. Well, this is it. We've reached the finale of Build Smart Season 2. In this season, Patrick has in great detail analyzed each aspect of the building industry. Design, construction, operation, maintenance, and collaboration. Discussing the challenges that we face, illuminating how those challenges arose, and ultimately outlining how adoption and investment in technology can help us overcome them. Throughout the season, Patrick has also shared the story of Building Smart International. From its start as a private consortium in 1994, supported by Autodesk, to becoming an independent, full-fledged international organization. In our last episode, for example, Patrick explained the UK challenge, which was the moment that changed the entire trajectory of the organization. If you haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to that and all the episodes to hear Patrick's full story and insights into how to reimagine the building industry. In today's episode, Patrick pulls together everything we've learned and highlights how design Patrick, can take I center stage. The title of this podcast episode, Explain How the Architect Becomes Liberated. This is the culmination of a long, long dream. When I got out of school and began practicing, it became clear to me after a few years of practice that architects, in fact, were constrained. We were tied in knots increasingly by complex buildings, complex and growing codes and regulations. We were uh, stuck in an old technology using two-dimensional drawings to describe three-dimensional buildings. We also were set apart from the contractor and in fact, too often the contractor and the architect are set up as opponents or even rivals instead of partners. So all those things worked against 
the architect being the best at what the architect was trained to do. I didn't go to architecture school for anything else except I loved design. I wanted to be a great designer. I think every young person that enters architecture school has some idea about it like that. I didn't go to school to learn how to coordinate projects. I learned, but I didn't go there for that purpose. And I didn't learn in school how to organize teams and operate within a schedule and a budget. I learned that on the job. So all of those things got in the way, the, the conflict with the contractor, the difficulty with organizing project work and coordinating with the, uh, the engineers and the contractor got in the way of good design. What I found by mid-career was it's not working the way I was taught, the way I thought architects should be. So what could we do to liberate the architect to get design back to center stage? And yes, there's a coordination work and yes, we want to make a profit and yes, we have to do this and that, but let's not squeeze design out of our existence just to survive. And I see that happening too often. So what became Building Smart is actually a way out of this dilemma. And it's a way for the architect to get back to practicing design again. If we have the contractor as a colleague and friend, if we change the way contracts are written between the architect and the contractor and the owner and go to a more collaborative form of contract. That's a giant step in itself. And you might recall that when you and I did the first podcast series about the work of HOK, I had an experience of working with a contractor in the design and construction of Moscone Convention Center in San Francisco. It was my first experience in working with a contractor during design. And I found that the people that I worked with were good people and we became friends. And they were able to help me as I designed and I was able to help them as they built. So it became collaborative instead of confrontational. So that was one piece. I wish that we could get back to that. And the other piece was, how do we coordinate increasingly complicated, complex buildings? And the answer is the computer. Let the computer manage the complexity so that I, the architect, we, the architects, can be more thoughtful about design, more creative, that we can work harder and more diligently to solve our client's design needs instead of rushing through design to save enough time to coordinate the work later. That's the journey of Building Smart really is that second piece, which is, can we get the information that we need to coordinate with others and organize in such a way that the computers can begin to do this for us? They can be in a way our digital assistants and help us by coordinating the things that people don't do very well and architects especially, and leave us more time to be thoughtful about design. That's not only possible, it's compelling, Mark. I believe that our industry is failing to serve the needs of people. We're not designing buildings that are good enough, that last well enough, that are green enough. And we're certainly not designing to solve the needs of our clients. I think we're, we're chasing after too often design that is superficial and trendy are stylized instead of design that's thought all the way through that I was taught in school that you design from the inside out. Design that's really thorough is design that makes a building work well, work well for the clients, work well for the people that use it, 
not just look good. It's more than skin deep. So if you get these two things in place, Mark, if you get the relationship with the builder so that it's collaborative and not confrontational, and if you have the computer and uh, open programs taking on that burden for you of exchanging that information and keeping track of things, then you can actually think more about design. And a liberated architect, a good designer, really listens to an owner, a client, and does his or her best to anticipate the owner's needs and deliver to the owner something that is extraordinary for the owner, that benefits the owner, that not only surprises and delights the owner with the appearance, but works well, that serves the owner's needs well. And owners can be delighted with the appearance of a building with how it works. They can also be thrilled if a building comes in under budget and uh, within the time frame that was scheduled, and if it performs the way they were told, if the if the building has no flaws, and if the building actually is a green, and if it you you name the number of characteristics. If the architect does all of these things properly, the architect becomes what we all want to be, which is become a trusted advisor to your client. So the client begins to say, well, Patrick, what do you think we should do about this project? Or how should we do that? Or maybe they call you before their next project and you have a nice lunch somewhere. They say, I want you to design this project. I'm not going to put an RFP out on the street and pick somebody new. I want you because I trust you. I know who you are and what you do, what you can do. Uh, that's a wonderful, rewarding thing. And for the architects out there who have not had that experience, you have to work at it, but it's what you really should aspire to. So design taking center stage means all of those things to me. It's putting the architect back at the center of society, really, along with doctors and educators and a few others that uh, are really helping society be to be our best, to provide that stage on which society uh, works and interacts. And uh, I think too often in the, in the hurly-burly of our work, we lose sight of all that. Mark, the other thing about building smart is, if we're going to exchange this information with others, there has to be a change in how we uh, view liability law, because exchanging information is the opposite of what we were taught to do as architects. Right. You know, don't give the contractor any more information than you have to that's necessary to uh, describe the building and let the, let the contractor figure it out. Well, if you are collaborators and you're figuring out together, you're going you're gonna to take benefit of the contractor's detailed knowledge of how to build and your detailed knowledge of how to design and how to serve your client but it does require a change to the law and it requires enlightened owners. This is happening, Mark, all over the world now. Owners are coming to, to the realization that they shouldn't hire architects and contractors separately. They should hire a team. And designing and building are together again as they were back when the building guilds were practicing 500 years ago. So those two things, collaboration and letting the computer take care of managing a lot of that complexity are the two keys to liberate the work of the architect so that we can take back that territory that I think we've lost over my, my career 
uh, we're getting pushed further to the edge of society instead of being in the center. And I want that territory. I want that back. I want us to be right back in the middle. Patrick, when I look at the current state of our industry and our profession, I often see some of these changes happening, but very often that's being led by contractors. Yes. Right. And so how important is it that the architects step up and become the leaders of this innovation and this change in the way we should be doing things? Being led by contractors might be, might be okay. But if the contractor is my friend and collaborator, it's a joint venture or collaborative effort. I'm, I'm cautious about having the contractor take control of the architect. That's a, another way to, gee, we can build this within the budget and schedule if we can just squeeze the architect over into that corner and, uh, and make most of the decisions ourselves. That's not the right way to get the best design. And for the architects listening to this podcast, you're going to have to earn your way into this. You're going to have to reform how you practice and you're going to have to use digital tools. If you're not using them, you're going to have to adopt them and learn how to use them well so they become your servants, not something to be afraid of. And you're going to have to find contractors that you worked with in the past that you like, befriend them, and look for ways to go after projects together in a relationship that's mutually beneficial, not wait for a contractor to come to you and say, I want to hire you to design a building for me. I think architects have to stand up and go after this if they're, if they're going to achieve this kind of uh, status. It's not going to be handed to them. So the, the message there is, I got my kick in the pants in the UK uh, when they said, building smart, you've got to grow up. And I'm saying to the architects there, we have to grow up, folks, and do our part to become in the center of society as, as we once were and as I think we can again become. But you have, to, you have to work. Yeah. So it's not only about changing the way we design and deliver but also the technologies that we're embracing, that, that we have to not only embrace BIM and open BIM and IFCs, but the next level, right? The, what's coming down the line, the next technologies. And I think a lot of our profession sees some of that technology coming our way and is afraid of it, that that technology may replace us. How important is it that, again, architects take the lead in that technology innovation and, and embracing what's coming down the line, maybe even leading that development of that technology. It's the only way. Technology is going to be here. It's not going to go away. And technology is getting better and better. I think technology will replace a lot of the coordination, and I hope it does, a lot of the coordination work that we used to do. Technology will place a lot of the drafting and the keeping track and counting numbers of things. and as BIM becomes more widespread and more open, there's lots of room for young startup firms to take advantage and provide special tools that can help architects, designers make good decisions early in the process. In order to build smart, you need to operate intelligently. If you feel frustrated wrangling all your spreadsheets to get a clear view of where your projects stand today, or you're tired of staring at poorly designed software that's just slowing you down, Monograph is here to help. 
Designed by architects for architects, the Monograph platform allows you to track your firm's time, projects, budgets, invoices, and payments all in real time. With their innovative visualization tool, MoneyGant, you can immediately see whether you're under or over budget. Need to easily adjust your team's time week to week? Their tool resource allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget. Visit monograph.com today to see why hundreds of architecture firms call Monograph a game changer. How familiar are you with the hidden forces shaping our world? Learn about the spaces you occupy every day with Spaces Podcast, a journey through the design, construction, and the impact of our evolving environments. Hi, I'm Demetrius Lynch, host of Spaces, and I'm thrilled to take you on a ride through the intersections of environment, politics, culture, and economy. Join me and leading industry professionals as we uncover the stories behind the spaces that shape societies, past, present, and future. Today, there's a certain amount of cynicism and and kind of general malaise. Maybe many practices should come together and think about common goals, solving some of the major issues of the day. If I'm not mistaken, am I seeing like a wallpaper that is imitating books in some places? Yeah, I have to say, now we are in peace with this. But (laughs) (laughs) Subscribe now by following the link in the show notes, and let's unravel the secrets of our built world together. Spaces Podcasts. Go beyond the everyday, because spaces shape society. To get a sense of the technological advancements that are happening today, Patrick spoke to a number of companies that are working to bring technology to the design process in unique and powerful ways. One company was TestFit, a real estate feasibility software with real-time insights to design, constructability, and cost for developers, architects, and general contractors. TestFit started at its most simple level with our co-founder, CEO Clifton, realizing that he didn't get into his industry of architecture. He was working at a residential developer. He's like, man, why am I counting parking stalls? This is Kyle Bernhardt, Chief Revenue Officer at TestFit. He'd been up all night working on a design option and he'd got it all figured out. And then he showed up the next morning and his boss was like, now you gotta change it again. And he realized he was going to have to recount everything and all the units and make sure that all the counts were right. And he was like, this is crazy. There's got to be a better way to do this. And so he had a a close friend who was a software developer, and they worked together to create the very, very first version of TestFit. Lord knows there's plenty of Microsoft Excel spreadsheets to calculate things. But there really wasn't an application that would make it really easy to say, okay, sir, roughly the same site and the same footprint, can I easily change the blend of studios to one one bedrooms to two bedrooms and and mix that around easily? And can I make sure I can hit my parking requirements easily? That just didn't really exist. And what's it going to cost me to do all that? And can I hit my yield on cost target, which is a primary financial metric associated with making these development decisions? It was really all about 
solving the fundamental financial decisions around deciding to move a project forward. And and, and that was uh, a really compelling idea. We have this zoning boundary for the site and you could adjust it visually in its dynamic way. You just kind of grab it and move it over to adjust your setback. And when you were done with it, you let it go and then it resolved the building based around how you're done with it. Because in testament, you don't really sculpt, you more like create constraints. And then the best option available, given the constraints you've created, that's what actually creates the building form. And that was the thing that created what is the, the part of testament that most people find unique. It's really the soul of the application, that idea that like testament will never give you 100 options. It will only ever give you one option in front of you, and you can interactively interact with that option, and you can manipulate it, but everything is happening in real time. And so the name TestFit obviously comes from what the product does. Exactly. It helps an architect or a developer or a planner, whoever it is, test a site to see what, and this, I think you're probably talking multifamily housing, condos or something. Correct. Yeah, we do multifamily housing, all sorts of different typologies in the application. Uh, and we also do industrial warehouses. We do also have a massing mode that can do pretty much any sort of larger scale master plan. And when you do this, how does the architect take that forward? The typical workflow is you can output to AutoCAD, you can output to SketchUp, and then we also have a beta version of an add-in that will create Revit geometry straight from what was generated in TestFit. Most all of TestFit is used in almost a pre-contract phase. So to, to tie back to the prior comment about your the McLeany curve, which I appreciate you not naming, but I will forever think of you <laughs> as the creator of it. You know, the McLeany curve started when the when the architect got contracted. And TestFit almost works a little bit further to the left on the x-axis, the moment before the contract's even really signed. And so, you know, at that time, often there's a kind of a handshake agreement between the architect and the developer that you know, if we move forward on this job, thanks for the test fit you just gave us in three to four days, we'll we'll actually pay you on the design services side once this job moves forward. And so, you know, test fit is really operating up there. And that workflow is typically to produce that concept design that we'll pencil in from a financial perspective. It helps to meet the development goals. And then you take that information and you carry it into downstream design tools you enrich that with more detailed BIM information. I'm sure there's plenty of iterations along the way, but most likely the fundamentals of that development investment are intact because those investments were sound and they typically don't want to back out on those unless there's a good reason. So it's an opportunity for clever architects or others to put themselves in front of a developer and say, look, in a matter of a few days, I can run through iterations and really see if this project, uh, even before maybe you buy the site, you might have an option, even before the developer puts the money down, I can tell you the feasibility of developing that site. And so there's a lot more known at the beginning. A lot of the risk is therefore taken out because of this tool. That is exactly right. When we think about the verb that we provide, it's, it's de-risking decisions. Um, and, and you're spot on, Patrick, in terms of that moment when this application is, is done. And what, what was interesting, we actually had a, 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 one of our largest customers or one of the top five developers in the United States. 
and, and we were chatting with them about their operations and they told us their hit rate is typically 8%. So what that means is 92% of the designs they do, the concepts they do never move forward. So they're not making money off of those. They wanna make that decision as quickly and cheaply as possible. They're typically not looking to pay an architect for that because they're not moving forward on it. So, you know, they they're working in this dynamic where speed and flexibility are at a real premium. And as Daniel Davis, who wrote a great article about, you know, the future of CAD being boring, which is the best way to understand what we're up to and test it. You know, as he mentions, you know, it's all about that idea that there's a segment of the market that is relatively repetitive. And it's not the domain of the architects. It's the domain of finding the right balance of, you know, operational requirements and time to market and uh, construction costs. So uh, another way I would put that is your product, the test fit, is more about how something works, not how it looks. Yes. Bingo. To get cost information, you have a slot for it. Mm -hmm. Who provides that then? Is that the developer? Generally, they do. Yes, Patrick, because for them... What it's typically the typical exercise, especially in, in in a site acquisition workflow, when time is really tight, there's pretty rarely actually a an architect generated test fit. It's just the time is too tight, that the cost is too much. So it's running out of like a pro forma spreadsheet. And so that's really the the, the standard of care is to be able to do that. So there's always some level of financial assessment that's involved in these decisions. So yes, there's always cost in some way, shape, or form. And typically the developer has a, a good point of view that they use from historicals, from past development projects, and they'll just plug those sorts of things in. If that developer, at least in my view, <laughs> is smart enough to think about a delivery model that might be something like a design build delivery model, and they're not just talking with an architect, but they're talking with the builder at the same moment, we see the contractor providing that sort of insight around construction costs. They tend to have a much better expertise towards that, uh, but not every developer functions that way. Patrick also spoke with Paul O'Carroll, the CEO and founder of Arcol, a company that is developing a web-based BIM tool intended to simplify the use of BIM technology in collaboration through the design process. What caused you to start thinking about this? How did that lead to the creation of this company? The kind of larger overarching theme to what I call is bringing the magic back to building design. Where that originates from is, you know, I grew up as a, as a, as a kid under my father's drawing tape. He was an architect uh, as a draftsman. And, you know, I'd see him sketch and etch and kind of deal with the paper and, and, and pencil of the day uh, and spend six months designing this amazing building. And I'd go on site six months later with a hard hat that doesn't fit and a, a busy vest that kind of doesn't fit either. See this mound of, of steel and timber and glass that would erect from the floor to create somebody's home. Um, and, and they experience memories and, and loss and raise a family in that space. Um, and that was all came from an, an idea in his head six months before that. That to me as a, as a, as a young Irish kid was just the most magical, beautiful experience in the world. And um, you can create something from nothing. And I thought, wow, architecture is amazing, beautiful. I stumbled through school. I left school early. I, I was a, a freelance game developer for a while and, and ended up building my own company as a freelancer and then kind of built a digital design studio building tech for, for companies, found my way back into his architectural office to rent a desk uh, to work from um, and got reinvolved in the architectural workflow. Sitting there thinking that the magic was gone and architects deserve better tools and the process wasn't as magical as I thought it was. It was architects sharing across the office to sync to central or giving out because their current tool crashed. 
um, or they lost a particular file. At the time, I vividly remember thinking this way. Can architects are better tools? These tools should be should be natively browser-based. They should be collaborative. Architects should enjoy using them. Spend eight hours a day in these tools. They don't, don't enjoy using them. Um, and I, I formulated that into a thesis or kind of an idea of, of Google Docs for, for architecture. At the time, I was very scared that the current incumbent in the space would eventually build what they were, I was hoping would, would you know, reincarnate their current tool. Then she just grew frustrated that the incumbent didn't, didn't do it. Um, through a conversation with a, one of my past clients, my last company, they were like, hey, we like hate our current tools. And I was like, oh, funny. I, I don't like them either. I wanted to rebuild them a while ago. Like, why don't you like them? Uh, they told them the things that they didn't like, and it was everything I talked about, being collaborative, it was being web-based, being performant, and actually being an enjoyable and bring that creativity back to, to architecture. Um, so I decided to put a management team in my last company, went to raise money for, for our call, and here we are. So uh, why did you decide to make it browser-based? What's what's the thinking there? I, as a, as a technologist, I was incredibly bullish on the browser. I think the accessibility advantages it has, and there's, there's a bunch of other kind of interoperability advancements it has with, with other design tools. The argument of native collaboration, the ability to share a link between uh, a tool and it just automatically opens, like in Google Docs. You can theoretically do that with desktop application. It's more fluid and the onboarding experience is better in browser. Um, and accessibility, you know, as, a, as, a, as an architect, you should be able to work wherever you want, especially when we, you know, something like COVID happens and everybody's forced to go home. You go home to a workstation that is not powerful enough to, to run the current design tools. You got to spend an hour and a half downloading that tool on your, on your desktop computer because it's huge. And then you can download all the model files. You don't need to do it in the browser. Uh, it's all natively accessible. What kind of a connection do you need to the internet to use a browser for this? Is it anything special? No, any standard web, uh, any standard connection. I think most people in their home, uh, if they're able to use Google Docs or YouTube, will be able to use Echo. Okay, well, so if you can do YouTube, you can do Echo. Exactly. I think now there, there's some some theoretical kind of if your hardware can handle it, you know, we're still doing everything client side, so you still need a good CPU and a good graphics card. Although that becomes less and less of a problem over time as as computation yeah. just becomes better. But yes, theoretically, if, if if you can run YouTube, you can you can run Echo. Is it for PCs? Could you do it with a Mac? You can do whatever you want. You can do it on Linux. You can do it uh, on your phone, on an iPad, whatever you want. Okay, so you have freedom. It's a good freedom. thing. Okay, well, this is very interesting. What are your goals? What do you want to achieve here? You know, the term bringing the magic back to building design is not just some like fluffy marketing term. It like really means a lot to me. If architects can, can do a better job more efficiently or design better buildings, humanity as a whole benefits. I personally think the current design tools that we that we standardize, and you may notice I I'm not naming any names of tools or industry or companies. I'm being very careful not to. Um, but the current design tools we use, which I'm sure you know what I'm talking about um, in, in architecture, I don't think are built for the next generation of construction methodologies and, and how the industry is going to move forward. I think it is almost a duty upon myself and the rest of the alcohol team to make sure that we can, humanity can have better buildings. You really want to revolutionize the way the tool sets that people use. These are these have to be interactive tools. Talk about that a little bit. I, I'm an architect. Would it be somebody that like me that would use it? And how would I collaborate with a building engineer or a contractor? Is that possible? Exactly. I think it's I think it's not only possible, I think it's really, really important that those barriers between between not only internally at, at your architecture firm, between architects, but between disciplines, and um, that that collaboration barrier is broken down. As an architect, you you will be able to, I think. One of the things when I talk about this publicly is that I almost want to boil away all the crap 
I mean, when we have conversations about BIM and the future technology, people can tend to fill it with buzzwords and not really know what they're talking about. And I think that just doesn't do it justice. I think we can simplify the conversation an awful lot and actually do something practical. So when I, when I talk about removing the crap and junk, that it, it is that, it is the buzzwords of, well, the metaverse and you know Web 4.0 and all these things that architects hear at a conference at one point and say, because it, it sounds interesting. Because at the end of the day, although architecture is, and construction is one of the most complicated issues in the world, the job title is relatively simple. You need to design a building uh, and figure out how it's going to be constructed. And uh, the tools and the, and the acronyms around that have complicated that into BIM and you got to be this and you got to be this. It's, you got to design a building. Architects can be able to draw walls, windows, doors, model stairs, model facades of buildings currently in, it, in its current incarnation into construction documentation or, or presentation drawings, depending on what kind of stage the value capture you're at. Present that to your contractor so you can understand how to build it and you're done. So as an architect, to your point, uh, you should be able to design walls, design doors, design windows, design any kind of facet of a building that you'll be able to use and document that building. Um, and the the sharing process uh, is as simple as sharing a link. You share a link to your engineer and they jump into your file and they're there. You can see their cursor moving around. They can they can edit things in real time. Wow. And is there an engineer? Do they see things that the architect doesn't see? Yeah. So this is the kind of granular specificity of, of the product. So Aracle as a, as, a, as a product over the next call, two to three years, entirely focusing on architects. Post that, we'll go into engineers and, and the kind of interesting disciplines within that of HVAC and all those other kind of disciplines. Really, this is theory right now as to how engineers and architects are going to interact because you can't currently do it in, in Aracle. You can't draw uh, HVAC pipes. You can, you can draw walls and windows and doors. So theoretically, you should be able to view what an architect is viewing and also simply view uh, engineering-related equipment, let's call it, um, just by turning off and on a filter. You don't want to see architecture stuff. You don't need to see it. When you get a really complicated project that's huge and, and is, is some kind of large building, you've got 15 people in your file floating around changing walls and moving things. It's going to get pretty annoying. Um, so you should be able to just filter that off and on uh, pretty quickly. Theoretically, though, to your point, um, an engineer should be able to see all the architecture-related information, a wall built up or a, or a window or a door. Wow, okay. This is ambitious. Like I said, we were kind of doing this consulting where we would do you know, 30, 40 hours of work and so, then someone have a daylight model or an energy model very time intensive. This is Patrick Chopson, Chief Product Officer and co-founder of Cove Tool, a tech firm that aims to fight climate change by using automation to help architects, engineers, contractors, and developers leverage data-driven design. A lot of architects don't do the math of what they do, but we did and we we're like, wait, we can only do 25 projects per year. So then we started adding more grasshopper scripts and things like that to try to like automate different pieces of what we're doing. And of course, with that, you can probably half that time down from 30 to 40 hours. You can get it down to 15, to 10. And that is almost fast enough to keep up with the design revisions, but it becomes a limiting factor still. And so then I started talking to my brother, who's really experienced software engineer. And we were like, you know, these Python scripts you're running, you know, we could make a web-based tool. And he started to put those pieces together. Now, obviously, if you have a really cool cost versus energy optimization, we thought, well, we'll name it Cove. But since we started in Georgia, everyone uh, just called it the Cove tool because that's what they remembered. <laughs> uh, so then that's why we, we named it the way we named it. But it really wasn't like a big deal because energy is a hard thing for architects to visualize. And no matter how sophisticated a script that you make that recommends like all the different components of your building and optimizes them for cost and for energy, that still wasn't visual enough. And so we realized we needed daylight simulations. So we started combining that 
together as well. And so once we had a visual component to the software, that's when it really took off. Something architects could understand. Draw me a mm -hmm. picture. <laughs> you say you're doing energy and cost simulation. Are those simultaneous? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we use machine learning to basically optimize against those two variables. And that's kind of where we got started. And we've added like, you know, all your lead views credits, but we're basically just trying to follow a lot of the AIA's objectives around performance, like the top 10 <laughs> super spreadsheet that they made and different yeah. aspects of the guides. But really, I think now we're really on like everything we do, we just think about, could this thing help someone reduce carbon? So that's yes. our kind of filter for making yes. new stuff. So now it's a suite of, of tools. We have a drawing tool. Uh, we have a load modeling tool for mechanical engineers so that architects and engineers don't have to remodel. It kind of, it's all in the same shared digital mm -hmm. workspace and bringing more automation, not just to like the overall thing, but creating like if someone makes like a template for something that they're doing, then they can save that for the firm so that when the new kid comes on, he can use the same settings that the principal was using. Right. So kind of like curating knowledge and bringing that so that we're always moving forward rather than rethinking the wheel every single right. time. Rather than starting over each time. <laughs> and because the architecture is a team sport, that is they're architects, engineers, contractors, and specialists, how do you interact with software programs that other people are using? How does that yeah. work? Yeah, interoperability is like really key in our today's world. And I think we, I think the consensus is that we're moving away from files to like databases. Mm -hmm. So we kind of talk about what we call BIM, building information network <laughs> rather than BIM. <laughs> and that kind of that concept of a file or a file that's stored online. It's kind of like, we want to make sure that data is always up to date. So from our standpoint, we try to work with other startups for one with our API uh, so they can send data back and forth. And then we have all the plugins to like your Revit, Rhino, SketchUp, ARCHICAD, <laughs> just making sure that there's not a point in time where there's geometry that can't be analyzed. And then moving that information on to the next step by sending it back to another program, another software, uh, so that people can take that on the next step because we don't want to boil the ocean. We just want to make sure that people get the information they need and pass it through rather than creating a walled garden like a Facebook or something. Okay. And, and why don't you tell us what an API is? Yeah. So it's, it's basically just like a way for two different programs to communicate with each other. And it has a specific set of rules so that if I say, Hey, I want to know X thing, the API is like, Oh, he's looking for that thing. And it sends it to you uh, <laughs> on its most basic level. And there's rules for like, if you ask for something and it's not there, then it'll tell you like, this thing is not there. So it kind of gives you like a live connection between multiple pieces of software and it's interesting because within a web application, everything is an API because it's always all the parts of the app are talking to each other um, using those different rules. But in a traditional desktop-based software, you can't link to the web to something else quite as easily. So it's kind of interesting once you start to build those things and then you can like split calculations into multiple servers at, at once. Uh, you can do a lot of things that are just not possible on a desktop. And can your tool communicate both directions? Can it send and receive yeah. information? That's true interoperability. But do you, what if they change their software? What if they do an upgrade? Yeah, so we always keep up to date with the latest. If they're using Revit 2022 or 2023, you know, we'll make our plugin work for the new version. And then 
of course, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, there's different standards. So like all the energy codes keep changing. So that's a database that we have to track. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's, like a, it's a terribly complex beast that you're attempting to lasso here. Just the codes alone, they're, they're different from country to country, state by state, and actually city by city, yep. depending on what you're looking for uh, and what you need to do. The other side of this is the products that go into buildings have certain ratings, but it's not always well-defined or precise. Uh, there's no necessarily common standards. How do you work on that part of it? A lot of times what we do is we'll work with industry groups to do focus studies around like, okay, structural engineers, if we were going to estimate embodied carbon for wood frame, what are the rules that you would most like to see? And then working our way kind of back from like a, at least a consensus basis around like, what is the the primary concerns, or if it's, we're looking at like walls, for instance, everyone agrees that there's a U value or an R value for a certain type of insulation, but making sure that we validate that. Okay. If this manufacturer says like Rockwell, for instance, has a certain amount of embodied carbon in their product versus Owens Corning has another R value and U, and U value and all the different cost profiles and the different embodied carbon numbers for each one, merging that to one database um, has definitely been a a, a task that we've been working on for the last year. Um, yes. So we're, yeah. so we have like a full assembly builder inside the tool now as well. Being able to measure things in real time, you know, you're saying, well, you can simulate things. I don't know what your timeline is now, but it used to take you a couple of days and then it became a few hours. If it can be almost over the shoulder where the program is going to tell you as you're designing, making choices, here's what you're doing to energy and here's what you're doing to carbon or cost. Yeah, and you got our, <laughs> our daylight simulations are actually the fastest in the world right now. We've because um, we split it into a bunch of different servers and do some other things. Um, we've gone from like thirty hours to about three minutes for an entire building. So we can run like a full nineteen-story tower in like about five minutes or less with a lead two-foot grid, um, which is what they they're looking for for spatial daylight timing, for instance. And that mm -hmm. that's kind of like a big leap forward. Or our energy performance takes about one point seven seconds to run for the whole year. So kind of like the web is obviously more powerful than your desktop. And so those yeah. kinds of, <laughs> those kinds of things uh, with distributed computing has really kind of given us that ability to make that big step forward. And who are your customers then? Who are you selling to? We've actually seen like a lot of your big firms obviously are like really doubling down technology. Every time that there's been a recession in the past five years or so, or something weird has happened like COVID, it, we, what we find is that the large firms start buying more tech. Um, they start like training people more. They're taking advantage of that slight downturn in their production time to kind of get people upskilled. And then when the economy comes back, then they're obviously in a much stronger place yet again. And then you kind of see that the firms that are kind of competing with the big firms are the ones that are also adopting these new tools and technology. But then surprisingly enough, you'll have people that will leave those big firms to start their own small firm. And then they'll be like, hey, I need this tool as well. <laughs> so yeah. there's kind of like, you know, 88% of the market or something like that is like one to 10 person firms. Yes. But we find that those are the ones that benefit the most from an automated tool, because then obviously you don't have in-house talent to run all these different things, um, but you can still make stuff right. that competes yeah. with the big, big dogs. So we have people like, you know, your uh, HKSs and your DPRs, some of those folks. Um, we've also been working with Arup on a pilot for their, all their UK offices or things like that. So, you know, you kind of see your Acoms and your Jacobs and Dinslers and people like that are all like 
some of them are have tried in the past to build their own stuff, but obviously they didn't have 36 million to do that. So maybe it wasn't <laughs> as cool as what they thought. Um, so you kind of end up with a lot of times kind of that build versus buy thing going on. Um, but we really see that like a lot of folks are really starting to think about it, especially in when they are now confronting these new SEC regulations for the stock market, where if you're above a certain number, you need to report your scope three, for which is embodied carbon, and your scope right. two, everyone has to report, which is your operational energy use. So yeah. I think it's a big opportunity for architects to kind of reclaim control of that. Yeah, some people might feel threatened by these because they do some of the work that an architect would do. I'm thrilled by it because what I see is they can take some of the tedium out of the work that the designer does and leave the architect free to say, how can I now make this better, more attuned to my owner's needs, more attuned to the climate or the site? So I think there's there's room for both. And uh, the best designers are the ones that take all the input and support they can get and use their own ingenuity to do a design that is actually more responsive, uh, more tuned to the needs of their owner and, the, and the, the needs of the building that they're designing. So I was thrilled to see these young people doing these tools. All of them to one degree or another depend on this fancy word interoperability, that is being able to exchange information with other tools. And uh, that's the way the world will be in the future for sure. I think no one is an island anymore and uh, we're not working in silos. So I was thrilled to see these tools and think that there will be many, many more to come. Yeah, I agree. Many of those founders are trained as architects. A lot of those tools yes. come from the way architects think. And that's something that's really near and dear to me is that yep. architects taking, leading that evolution and innovation. Yes, why wait for Autodesk or somebody? If we really know that there's something we need and we have the ability, why don't we just build it? And, you know, authoring tools, uh, tools to help software designers do their work are also becoming easier to use. So there's no reason why, you know, building a software is a creative endeavor. Guess what architects do? If you can do this work and help architects save some steps, especially early in the process where key decisions need to be made early, you're going to help the profession. You're going to help individual architects do their jobs better. And for those who are not into the software business, that's okay. That That's fine. Take advantage of it. Leverage it so you're a, the best architect you can be uh, because you've got the best tools. It just frees us up to go to a higher level with our design work. So don't run away from it. Embrace it. So it's a wake-up call for the architects for sure. It's a wake-up call really for the industry. If we don't do this as an industry, someone will come along and reinvent this. Right. And we'll all be out of work. Google or Apple or somebody will say, you know, with algorithms and our digital network, we think we can assemble and design and put together pretty good buildings and we'll sell them on the street corners for a fraction of what the architects are designing them for. So it's either lead follower, get out of the way. I prefer to lead because we'll lose something. If design isn't at the center of our work, we're losing the essence of what architects are for. So yes, uh, it's a big challenging world out there, but for those who are called to architecture, all that hard work 
uh, will also enable you to master the technology and to learn new ways of working with a contractor instead of in opposition to one. Uh, so get off your duff and go out there and, <laughs> and conquer a piece of the, a piece of the practice that we, that's been uh, eroded away from us. It's, it's up to us, Mark. Patrick, do you have any examples of projects that have implemented this, that have contractor architect come together using the technology that, that we're talking about here and the result of that project? Sure, lots of them. Building Smart has an awards program that we put together uh, every year for projects that exemplify this collaborative effort between design and build. And uh, sometimes it's building, sometimes it's infrastructure, but we measure all kinds of things and give awards for collaboration. Who's doing the best handover and saving of money and staying on schedule and budget and so on. And um, these awards are highly prized by practitioners in our industry around the world. They're open globally, but anyone who wants to see the results of this can go to the Building Smart website and look for past awards. And there are little snippets in there, the details of how each project was awarded and for what. And it's, they're always collaborative and they're always ingenious for how people are, are making the computer work for them instead of the other way around and doing amazing things to make better buildings and to make uh, buildings that are more efficient, more green, you name it. So yes, there's a, there's a whole body of work now that is, is using this routinely. And there are a number of very good firms out there that are using open BIM standards in a routine way every day uh, to do everything from single family homes all the way up to the largest buildings and, and infrastructure. So design takes center stage, liberating the architect. Patrick, what are the lessons that we should be taking away from this final episode? First is that BIM software begins to manage the complexity of coordination, liberating the architect from a lot of the work that has fallen on the architect's shoulders for uh, in a growing uh, amount of work. And it becomes the architect's assistant providing feedback during design. That's the next phase of smart software to enable the designer to actually make more uh, informed choices as design is, is underway. It's also forcing, in a good way, the collaboration between the build side of the project and the design side, requiring for the full benefit, the collaboration of the contractor and the subs with the architect and the engineers and their subs. That's the other big payoff. So the, the effect of the open BIM software is to push the design and the build together. The contractor helping the architect during design and the architect helping the contractor during construction. As it was, 500 years ago with the guilds, the building guilds. And the impact of that is that design then becomes central to the work of the architect, not marginalized at the edges. And that of course means that the architect can focus on design and design done well, reestablishes the architect at last to an honorable place at the center of our society, where I believe and you believe the architect belongs because we have a lot to give and let's not throw this away.
Thank you for joining us for this season of Build Smart. While this part of the story has come to an end, please stick around for our bonus wrap-up episode, where I have a candid conversation with Patrick. We discuss this season, additional insights that we weren't able to get to, and so much more. In the meantime, I encourage you to re-listen to previous episodes, all the previous episodes, to catch lessons that you may have missed the first time around. And make sure you stay subscribed to be the first to hear about Season 3 of Build Smart. Season 2 of Build Smart Podcast has been made possible in part by Building Smart International, the worldwide industry body driving the digital transformation of the world's built assets. Learn how Building Smart International is impacting our world and how you might get involved at buildingsmart.org. This podcast is a Gable Media production and is produced by Demetrius Lynch Jr. Gable Media is the home of curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. You can listen in, subscribe, and find more content like this from our network partners at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that, (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.